0: It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, my beautiful people. What a ride it has been this week with our two masterclasses on personality and performance. I got to see so many of you that have been listening and following the podcast, and it makes such a difference putting some faces to the names. So everyone that's been DMing me to see you on the other side of the screen was so nice. On the Thursday night, lots of people were asking if they can actually get their DISC personality profile done. And so I'll pop some information in our Facebook group for those that have asked. And we have some other big news. I sold one of my businesses this week. Our gorgeous yoga studio in the heart of Armadale has been sold to Kate. She has been with us since day one, and I just want to wish her the best of luck heading into this new chapter and into spring. She is absolutely the right person to be taking over the studio. And thank you to all my beautiful clients that have been with us there for four to five years. I'm really going to miss you. But as you know, I'm just next door, so I'll still be seeing lots of you. And in true Ali style, for those of you that don't know me, I never do things in halves. I'm that person that like, if it's raining, why don't we go out and dance in the rain and just soak up all the change. So, as well as selling the yoga studio, running the two masterclasses, we also decided to redesign my whole fitness business this week. And now we're offering the full package to all of our clients. Movement, sleep, mindset, nutrition, lifestyle. My team and clients have been super Amazing with all the changes. I often think I'm the luckiest business owner in the world. I have the most beautiful clients, beautiful community. And most of our clients have been with us for over eight years. It really is like a second family. So thank you for everyone who's gone on and left a review for the podcast. I get all those notifications and I just love hearing what's landing for you, what takeaways you're getting. And I had no idea that the reviews were so important, firstly, for me to get that feedback, but also it helps us reach more people. Today, I have a very special guest, Catherine Stevens. She is so brave speaking out about her challenges. We talk about ovarian cancer and the really difficult conversation of her being a woman in her 40s without children. Catherine has spent the last 10 years of her life back and forth from oncology visits and I just loved in this episode when I heard her say that she can finally move on with her life and that the last two years has been the best she has ever been. Catherine and I laugh and cry so many times throughout this interview and I'm really hoping that this conversation raises awareness around ovarian cancer. I'm going to read you some of the information directly from the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation as I think every single one of us needs to be aware of the statistics. In Australia, one woman dies every eight hours from ovarian cancer. White cells in our body usually grow in a controlled and organised fashion. When they grow abnormally, they form a growth or a tumour which can be benign or malignant. Benign tumours are not cancerous and they do not spread. Ovarian cancer is a malignant tumour and is in one or both ovaries and can continue to spread throughout the body if not treated. Ovarian cancer is the most lethal gynecological cancer. Although tests and scans can show abnormalities, they cannot provide a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. The only way to directly confirm a diagnosis is by taking a biopsy during surgery and looking at the cells under a microscope. Ovarian cancer is the eighth most commonly diagnosed cancer in Australian females, and 64% of women recently surveyed at the University of Melbourne incorrectly believe that a pap smear detects ovarian cancer. It actually doesn't, and I would be one of those stats because until I had met with Catherine, I didn't know that either. There is no early detection test for ovarian cancer, so we need to raise awareness. Nearly one in three Australians don't know the difference between ovarian cancer and cervical cancer. So by listening to this podcast and sharing it with your friends and family, we can really make a difference and we can save lives. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome, Catherine, to the podcast Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for giving up your afternoon. It's exciting to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I love to start the podcast with a couple of questions. And the first one I always ask is, do you have an animal that best describes you? And if yes, what animal is it and why? I
1: thought a lot about this because, you know, as, as you know, my personality is I like to get things right. So I <laughs> About this, I'm like, I want to plan the right answer here. Um, And I actually asked lots of different people what they thought because I thought this would be interesting just to see. And I eventually came back to I decided that I was probably most like a horse. And the reason I said that was you know, hopefully strong, like, you know, loyal, reliable, can be a bit flighty and high strung at times. And the other thing that I sort of thought was a bit like me was, you know, like, likes affection, but doesn't always give affection very readily. So that was that was my my answer for that.
0: And I just want to get clear, how many days have you been planning on this answer? Oh, so many. Like, <laughs> For everyone out there that likes to be organised, this is why I send out some of the questions early on and every time I always think, could I just throw in a curly up front for people? (laughs) I'm glad you didn't. (laughs) And the other question that I asked that you know I'm going to ask you is, do you have a favorite place or a favorite room when you were growing up? And what was it about that?
1: I think when I was growing up, there was probably two places that were my favorite places. So I grew up on a farm. So the first one was there was this great big hill and it was close to the house. It was the second paddock over from the house. And, you know, you could run to the top of the hill or you could ride your horse to the top of the hill and you could see, everything around. You could see the house, you could see the back of our other property. And it was just, it was always a really calming place. It was always really beautiful. You could see the sunrise and the sunset really well. And it was just a spot that I always, like it was my thinking spot. And it was the spot that, you know, I just loved to be outside and be, be there and the other place was probably my bedroom I was a really shy kid like really I'm a natural introvert and I used to love just to sit in my room like I used to read all the time yeah so it was a bit of a a sanctuary for me you could often find me mum used to joke that it was never a punishment to send me to my room because I used to love it to just sit there and read so like, I'll
0: go for a week just don't disturb me yeah so yeah that's probably the two places you know when you say that about the horses we had horses growing up and we used to ride around we had about I don't even know 1,500 acres or something on one of the places we lived on and I often think about it now and I'm like I used to go for the whole day without a phone Mm. like on my own. Yes. I know as a mom now with three girls that I would be okay with my kids going for six hours on a horse, no oh, idea definitely. where they are. <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't know if I'm a control freak or whether it's just different these days. But just hearing you talk about that, I was thinking my, one of my best mates, Pia, we used to ride up, she had a really steep hill next to her house and we used to like gallop up that hill as fast as we could go and then try and come down it as fast as we could. So dangerous. Yes. like so many dangerous
1: things. We talk about of oh, my siblings and I just going – how did we survive some of the things that we used to go up yeah. to in our childhood? Like, and I say to my siblings now, would you let your own children do those things?
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm like, say to the girls, why don't you go down the paddock, but here's a phone and how long are you going to be? And You're I'll being, just do drive down. So Catherine, tell us a little bit about you. So you're teaching at the moment and I'm going to get you to say what your role is because I can't say it and I also (laughs) don't know what it is. So let's chat about that.
1: (laughs) So my title is leader of pedagogy, which is an excellent word. It's very hard to say. And what that means is pedagogy means the art and science of teaching. So the crux of my role these days is I work with the teachers at my school and the other people in the leadership team at my school. And we just work on improving teacher practice and getting the best learning outcomes outcomes for students. So it's a lot to do with coaching teachers. It's a lot to do with strategic planning. It's a lot to do with finding different ways to get kids to learn. So it's a really interesting and exciting role to be in.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you're not doing any teaching in the classroom at the moment.
1: So I spend a lot of my time in classrooms. So working with kids and working with teachers. So even though I don't have my own class, I work all across our school with all kinds of different kids, all kinds of different teachers doing all kinds of different things. So it's, it's a really nice role in that respect. You get to do, you get to see everyone, you get to work with everyone. It's really like diverse and dynamic.
0: And it's funny because that's not the role I think of you in. I think of you as the photographer. So anyone that's seen the photos in our Facebook, (laughs) group challenges that change us. It was actually Catherine that took those ones. So you're an amazing photographer and that's something that you do on the side. It is. Yes. So it kind of happened by
1: accident. So I started working in publicity for our rugby netball club and for the zone rugby. And it was really hard to get images, like get decent photos and get, you know, things that you could use for content. And so I just decided, right, I'm just going to I'm gonna teach myself how to take photos. It's the easiest way. So I started doing that and then I really, like, really enjoyed it. And now I've sort of started branching out into to other things, into you know, family photography and corporate photography and that sort of thing. It's kind of just happened by accident, but I love it. It's it's a nice creative outlet and it's just something a little bit different.
0: And you're so good at it. Did you have a camera and it was something you were interested in and then you started to do it for the club? Or did it even start like you were using the club camera and you had never taken really photos? I'd never
1: really taken photos. Club didn't have a camera, so I went, right, I'm just going to buy one. This is just I'm going to teach myself how to do it. So, so at the moment I'm self-taught, so I'm still still learning mm-hmm. a lot, but I just, I just love doing it. So hopefully other people like it too. <laughs>
0: I want everyone to go on and have a look. Where can they go and look at your photos? Because no one would believe that you are self-taught and that like you haven't been doing it oh, for that's very, very long. very kind.
1: So I've got just Instagram and Facebook page and it's just Catherine Steven photography. Very, very straightforward. So yeah.
0: We'll pop it in the show notes though, because it is really good. And for anyone out there that I don't, I can speak from the corporate space. If you need any corporate photos, like it was such a fun day. Oh, I'm so
1: glad. That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's everything every I was like, oh, I forgot my heels. Oh, where's my belt? Like, <laughs> Left everything everywhere but it was really I thought it was going to be um, you know very I guess structured and forced and it was I mean we laughed we were already laughing oh, now, so you, can, so much. <laughs> you can imagine what the day was like we just laughed our whole way through it I think my cheeks were sore the next day <laughs> and the other thing that I really would love to spend a few moments talking about is you're an ambassador for ovarian cancer. Yes. So that was
1: something that kind of happened a little bit by accident as well. So it's roughly just, just over 10 years ago now, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and Last year, which was 10 years on from when I was first diagnosed, I decided to do Froctober, which is a campaign that's run by OCRF every October. And there's two different parts to it. So the first part is it's about awareness. So you post a photo of yourself in a frock every day, you share a fact about ovarian cancer that you know people might not know about, and you know, people engage with hopefully engage with your photos and, and learn something new. And the second part is fundraising. So, you know, you have a fundraising page, you can hold events and do do that sort of thing as well. So, you know, it's, it's really good because you get that two-sided sort of impact, hopefully with what you're doing. I did the campaign, which was a real, this is really stepping out of my comfort zone. It wasn't something that, that I sort of intended to do, but I thought, oh, why not? And then OCRF contacted me afterwards and said, oh, would you be interested in coming on our ambassador program? Because they, they liked what I did and they thought that I might have you know, an interesting voice to add to what they were
0: doing. Yeah. And do you know, the thing that I remember apart from the amazing dresses and I was like, please tell me that you're borrowing these dresses from people because every day there was this fabulous new shot of you. But the thing that really- I do love clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that stood out for me more than that though, was the statistics that you were popping up every day. I was constantly jaw dropped at, I had no idea, right? Like no idea of A, how common it was, B, it can be diagnosed, like nothing about it. And so that's why we thought it'd be great to bring you on this podcast today. So we can talk about it. We can talk about your experience. We can talk about building that awareness for women because you were so young when you got diagnosed with it and you had to really fight for that diagnosis in the first place. And we're going to get into that. So maybe let's start there. Like how did you even find out? Like what were the early signs? What made you think something wasn't quite right?
1: Well, it's been, I had an interesting health history before that. So I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was about 23. And that was the start of an interesting journey because I wasn't your stereotypical candidate for that. I wasn't overweight. I didn't have any of the other symptoms.
0: So what made them diagnose that?
1: I had sort of had irregular periods. I had you know, some pain around there, like little bit that they thought might have been burst cysts and things like that. And they did some tests and they found there was enough evidence to diagnose that. And it took a little while because I was like around that sort of time. And in my adolescence, I was really active, like st- exercise all the time was really active and they put it down to the the symptoms, you know, the irregular periods and things were because I was so active and there'd been like my mum had similar things. So they finally went, Oh, maybe something's not quite right here. So that was my first interesting journey into having to sort of push to say something's not quite right. And then when I was around, it was just before I turned 29, I was just There was just something not quite right. Like I was really tired. I was putting a lot of weight on around my stomach, which wasn't a place that I ever sort of held weight. And again, like still really active, reasonably healthy lifestyle. And um, I just kept saying to my GP, I'm like, I just, I feel like there's something not right. There's something not right. And the first GP was like, it's all in your head. Like you're being ridiculous, (laughs) which was, you know, it's pretty hard. You start second guessing yourself. Yes, Um, of course. The second GP was like, oh, it's probably just, you know, your sister probably just playing up. It's, it's nothing. You probably just need to do a little bit more exercise. And that, I just laughed because at that stage I was exercising like five days. You know, you know what I'm like, really yeah. at training five days a week, super, like super into, you know, my routines. For and high intensity as well. High intensity exercise. So I was like, yeah, yeah okay. And then. I eventually convinced this doctor to send me for an ultrasound and it was just lucky because my mum and my sister are like both working health and mum said go in there and say you want an ultrasound like just demand that you want it and that you know they'll be they, they probably won't say no so I did and they found a really big mass like Huge mass. It was the size of my head. And at that oh stage, my God. it was huge. It was enormous. Um, and I started to get back pain at that stage because it was pushing on my spine. You know, there were all kinds of other things going on because it was just this huge mass in yeah. my abdomen. And so then I moved to a third doctor because I went, I'm out of here. Like this doctor's Ooh. just totally, really hasn't helped me. And then it was with the third doctor that we finally started to to go, okay, there's something really wrong here. <laughs> we need to to go get it checked out. So the next steps were, you know, I had this huge mass. It looked what they call complex. So it did look like it was malignant. So I went for a CT scan and that was, that was their reckoning. I went to an ecologist in Newcastle and that was about, so all of this happened within the space of about two weeks. So it was very, very quick, obviously, because they were like, Gee, something's really very wrong here. And I got to the oncologist in Newcastle, and I saw them it was on a Friday, and they were horrified that it had got like you know that this had gone on for this long and it was this size. And there wasn't a lot of discussion at that stage around what it was it was more just we have to get this out now
0: that would have been so scary I'm just listening and I'm thinking it would have been so frightening
1: it was terrifying it was was just it was and it was such a shock it was not anything that I expected and you know the first thing they said was like this is really unusual for somebody of your age someone of your health status all of that sort of thing but yeah there wasn't a lot of discussion about what what it was and what was going to happen next. They were just like, we have to get this out. And the most terrifying thing that they said to me when I was down there was, we can't believe this hasn't ruptured and you're still alive. Like, so that was just like... (laughs) mind blown sort of thing I had my mum and Luke with me thank goodness because you just go into that you know you're into that shock sort of stage where you can't really process anything and I was just like I don't really even understand what's going on here
0: and you probably didn't even have time to be angry about how you've gotten you know you're probably no like it was just like I what do you mean
1: like this is just (laughs) like what is happening here
0: yeah And they wanted us to
1: stay down in Newcastle. They didn't want us to come home because, you know, the logistics where they said, if this thing ruptures, you will die. There's nothing we can do. But, you know, because it was so big, it was, you know, quite toxic. And they wanted us to stay down. And, like, mum sort of went, look, we really need to go home. We need to get some clothes. We need to get few things organized and I was back in Newcastle. I think it was on the Sunday night. So it was a very quick turnaround.
0: And to give you an idea, that's about what, four hours, four and a half hours. hours from yeah. where we are? Yeah, from
1: where we are. Just yeah. around the corner, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, zip home and then go back <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. Oh. And I didn't
1: really know, like I, I, up until that point, I'd never been in hospital. I'd never had surgery. I'd never had anything like this. So I had No idea what to expect about the whole hospital experience, what it meant to have surgery, what it meant to have any of this sort of thing happen. And it was just, yeah, it was just just complete shock. And then at that stage, they they thought it was cancerous, but they weren't sure. Like they weren't going to know until they went in and, and cut it out. So...
0: And did that happen on the Monday? Did you go into surgery on the yes, Monday?
1: Yes, yeah. So I went into surgery on the Monday. When I went and saw the oncologist, I saw the registrar and it was the head surgeon that was going to be operating and I didn't meet him until I was being wheeled into surgery. So that in itself was just really confronting.
0: Well, I think if we're like just even to put in perspective, when we talked about the questions about you knowing the questions to come on this podcast, like getting prepared for that. And then if we put that in concept of like you had no idea who was even going to operate on you or what they were looking for or what it meant or, you know, like you literally had no control over the situation whatsoever, it would have been so scary and so confronting.
1: Before I went into surgery, I don't know why this is one of the clear, but as soon as I have those, you know, really clear moments in a really traumatic situation they came in, they had a clipboard, and they just put it in front of me. I'm lying there, like, you know, in the part before you go into surgery. They went, you need to sign this. This says we can do a hysterectomy. This says we can do this. This says we can do all these things. I'm just like, I don't even understand what's going on here. Yeah. and I'm having to make all, you know, not even make these decisions. I'm just having to sign this because you have no yeah. choice, really. Like, you know, you're talking about your life here. And um, all these things that I hadn't even considered, like fertility and having kids Everything. and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. And, really hadn't been an issue and all of a sudden it was like an avalanche it was just I don't even know how to explain the feeling well, I'm crying
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can't see that but just, like, I'm just uh. thinking, I am just thinking—I can't imagine at that age just having all of that thrown at you and you just but you also like you said it was life-threatening you didn't have a choice but you no, still have to process was, it yeah right?
1: yeah and it was just I still just I still just remember not not knowing what to feel not knowing what to think not knowing what was going to happen and so yeah so I had the surgery and um It was pretty, like, you know, for someone who'd never had any sort of surgery or medical procedures or anything, it was pretty horrific um, as first-time experiences go so... I ended up, as I said, like the tumour was the size of my head. It was it was huge. And I ended up with this huge, I've got a midline scar that's about 25 centimetres. So it goes like straight, like from above my belly button, straight down my middle and it's vertical. So like they've cut all through, you know, the cross grains of your muscles and everything and they've, you know, basically just pulled it out because they had to get it out whole, which was something I didn't really understand. But like, no, we have to get it all. We have to get it out in one go. So you can imagine the size of the... <laughs> incision that they had yeah. to make
0: it's the size of a baby it's the it is, size yeah, exactly, of a baby
1: Exactly. And I often joke it's really not a funny joke but I often joke you know I got got all the um implications of having a baby without actually yes being a without baby. being able so, to have one yeah. that's just shit it's just shit. <laughs> that's just a shit outcome <gasps> and yeah. I didn't realize that you know I came I you coming to in recovery and I was to, like totally out of it and then Realizing that when I finally, you know, had a a reasonable amount of consciousness, I couldn't actually move because all the muscles in my stomach had been cut the wrong way. And I I couldn't move in my bed. I couldn't pull myself up. I couldn't do anything, which was such for me, like it was such a strange, strange place to be. And then so, you know, just managing that, managing that the pain and the shock of your body going through that and then... All these people coming in and having these conversations with you about, you know, yes, it's malignant. Yes, you have, this has to go to an oncology board. We've taken it. So I lost one of my ovaries as well. And they took out my appendix at the same, the same time. They might as well take it all. They just take it all. So yeah. Anything
0: you can take, take it all.
1: <laughs> and they've done biopsies on all the, you know, surrounding organs and all that sort of thing. And, um. You know, just people just throwing information at you left, right and centre. Mum was there, thank goodness, because you are you know, you need that person just to be able to listen and comprehend for you because I'm just like none of this is making sense to me and, um, yeah. Any of it
0: on its own is
1: huge. Yeah. Any single
0: one of those things on its own is huge, but to get all of it so suddenly without having even time to process what that could even be. No take up time. Like it was just. Yeah. yeah. And they've also (laughs) taken away your future. Like if we're really (laughs) honest in that space that you would have known then, did you know then that you weren't going to be able to have kids?
1: I didn't know then. So, you know, it was more just at that point, I just wanted to know what was going to happen next because because of my age and because they'd already taken one of the ovaries, one of the big things that the oncology board wanted to talk about was preservation of fertility, obviously. I had pre-existing polycystic ovaries as well. It took a really long time for the oncology board to talk about it. So, like, it was it was a couple of weeks afterwards before they actually decided what they were going to do. So, that was really hard. So, I had a week in hospital in Newcastle and, like, just being able to, like, I couldn't leave hospital till I could actually sit up and get out of bed on my own, which took a long time just because of the nature of the cut in my stomach. And then, like, I had to be well enough to sit in the car for four hours Mm. to to actually get home. And then I actually had to go home to mum and dad's because I couldn't actually look after myself.
0: Yeah, I think about the Caesars. I had three Caesars in... That's not even mine. Were planned, so the cut was tiny. But I know how much pain yeah. I was in and how much I couldn't move. Like completely different. But yeah, I can't imagine funny. what you would have been through, and especially never having had surgery before. No, and, <laughs> like you can't laugh. You know, go to the you toilet. Know, you, definitely can't, you, you can't laugh.
1: laugh. <laughs> so people come to cheer you up, and you're like, please just, just don't. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
0: So you had a week in hospital and then you came home and you still didn't have any news at that stage? Still didn't have any news. So I was, I was seeing mum's
1: um, doctor in Glen who was also a friend of hers and she was really great because, you know, she started to say, this is what it could be. This could be the outcome, like not trying to stress you out, but just, you know, okay, this is what we're dealing with. This is what it could be. And then it took a little while, like, for the pathology to come back too to confirm that it was actually malignant because they, you know, they do all these different tests and things. So that was a really hard time too because, like, when I was in hospital, like, you know, you're full of morphine, you're full of whatever else, you don't really know what's going on. But, you know, you've got a bit of conscience and clarity those weeks after coming out of hospital and then all
0: the what ifs are playing through your head. And the waiting game is so shit. It's like... Oh, I'm yet to find a solution or some strategies for that waiting game. Like, I don't know, did you come up with any during it? It's just, it's so hard. Not really. (laughs) Although,
1: now that I think back, it's only just popped into my head. So, just before I I found out about this and have been diagnosed and everything. I'd start, I'd signed up to do the school's like charity fundraising performance, like for the parents, like for the PNF. So it was like, it was like a parent performance where they, you know, did singing and dancing and all kinds of things. And I'd said that I'd done it and I, like, I was going to do it. I said to mum, oh, like do you think I should, do you think I should just say, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And mum said, no, like, like, you know. I think you should just say you're going to keep doing it because you never know what's going to happen. It could be a good project for you. You could be could be in a place that you can do it or if you can't, people will help you. So dad and I actually started like going through songs and things and talking about what we were going to do and that was that was really nice because it was one of the it was one of the ways that I sort of coped yeah. with that and thought, I'm going to start planning this. And um, that helped a lot. But the waiting was was tough. And when you weren't able to, for me,
0: I wasn't able to exercise. I wasn't able to do anything. It was pretty hard. <laughs> and that right there is what people don't also realise, I think, yeah. is that if you get, take like, they're your coping skills in your everyday life and they're yes. all stripped away. Yeah. So not only are you dealing with this massive cloud over your head, you can't actually use the strategies and tools you've been using your whole life to get you through tough times. To manage it. They're gone. Yeah.
1: No, (laughs) it's just, and I'd, you know, I'd always been a person who liked to be independent. You know, I'd like to be able to like I didn't particularly like cope very well with being vulnerable, all of those sorts of things. So it was a really challenging time. And then we got the results. You know, obviously, you know, I had cancer, they'd got it all out, they'd actually decided that they weren't going to do chemo or radiotherapy, but they were very edgy about it because. You know, there were there were huge concerns about preserving fertility but there were also huge concerns about not doing chemo or radio because, you know, it, it could come back, there could have been a spot that they missed and all that sort of thing.
0: Did you have to make that decision or did they make that They frame? made that decision,
1: thank goodness. I just Yeah, a bit
0: easier. Like not that any of this is easy but I think there's, you know, I think when sometimes when the doctors put it on you and say, what do you want to do, it's like, I Dude, don't know, yeah. I don't have a degree in it's this. Like, yeah. <laughs> Mate, you just told me about it for the first that, time and you're asking yeah. me whether I need to like, yeah, oh.
1: There was also the other thing that was, that we didn't know what was going to happen because of the trauma of removing the ovary and and the surgery and things like there was a chance that I could have gone into like menopause early as well. And that can also happen. So they didn't know if that was sort of hanging over my head as well, which didn't happen. Thank goodness. But then I got on a very uh, long sort of rotation of very close monitoring. So there were lots of blood tests, there were lots of ultrasounds, there were lots of CT scans for the first couple of years, or like quite often, because they wanted to really keep a very close eye. And the other thing was the type of cancer that I had is called a granulosa cell tumor, and it's only accounts for two to five percent of all ovarian cancer. It's really rare. So it was really unusual and um, really unusual are words that I've heard a lot over the last <laughs> few years when it's come We've to spoken my health Yes, yeah. So great. Like, so <laughs> they're like, oh, that's really unusual. So many doctors, that's really unusual. I'm like, great. Yeah, great.
0: <laughs> that means there's loads of research and you know exactly what we're doing and I feel like I'm in really good hands. Thank you for using Thank that Thank you word. for that. Yeah. <laughs> my favourite is always like, you know, that's unusual, so I don't know that we need to test for that. It's like, no, I definitely think you should test anything should, that's yeah. unusual. <laughs> So we
1: went down this path of, you know, quite close monitoring. It was also at my age for that type of cancer was quite unusual. It's normally in post-menopausal women or girls, young girls. So... All of the tumor marker data, so the, the blood tests that they do to see whether you've got whether signs of tumours in, in your blood were all the data was for post-menopausal women. So none of my data made sense because of course I was getting, you know, normal hormone spikes that women who are still, you know, um, of a reproductive age get. And none of them matched with any of their graphs or charts or anything that they had, because that's just not who normally had these cancers. So you know, I was, it was really difficult because it was always a guessing game. And every time the tumor markers would go up, I'd be sent for a scan, which was often, you know, so it was really stressful because you just didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, there were all, yeah, little cysts and things there all the time that were just there, that were nothing, but you'd just be like, Oh my God, please don't let this be something else.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And that like, there's anxiety going into a test. There's an anxiety yes. <laughs> having a test and if you know someone's like doing an ultrasound and they're like, oh, I might just check it and you're like, what What? what did you see? What and then there's see? a yeah. huge amount of anxiety post-testing waiting yes, for results waiting. <laughs> and, then, and then if the goalposts move, then it's like, well, how do I, where does that fit in the information exactly. I have and exactly. my life yep. and what does that mean? And then when they say it's unusual, you're like, well... <laughs> That doesn't help. That doesn't help. <laughs> no. That doesn't help. Like, and it's, you know, I've just spoken to a few people on this podcast about how challenging is having test after test over a couple of years. But you're talking about, I have you ever counted how many tests you would have had? I
1: haven't. I just I don't, I
0: don't think I've counted. Probably. Hundred, like,
1: probably. Yeah. 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 It was, it was a really, really interesting time. But that first two years, particularly. And it was an interesting time because I didn't realize how much I hadn't really addressed the trauma of the whole situation because it got to about It was probably about 12 months down the track and one day I just burst into tears, like, you know, hysterical tears and I just couldn't figure out why and I rang mum and I was talking to her and we figured it out. Like it was just I hadn't dealt with any of the, you know, the trauma really and I'd just been carrying it around for such a long time just going, well, I've just got to get on with this and I've just got to cope and I've just got to do the best that I can. And I think sometimes you don't really realise how much, you know, you just carry and then don't realise when you've got to cope with those really stressful situations. And, Mm. you know, aside from the physical things, you know, Luke and I hadn't been together that long at that stage. Like we were having really, you know, full-on conversations about, you know, fertility and things like that. We weren't even engaged at that stage. And so it was a challenging time for lots and lots of reasons.
0: Were there certain things that came up in those tears? Like were there certain... I guess, areas of the trauma that really hit home?
1: I think it was more just like I was, it got to that stage after a little while, like, you know, when you were were well again, reasonably well again, and, you know, things were back to normal. I just felt really angry and like I hadn't dealt with that. And it was, yeah.
0: (laughs) But you had a right to be angry.
1: Yeah. It's just sometimes I think you feel a little bit I don't know. It's almost a little bit guilty about feeling that way. And particularly because considering what could have been, it was quite a good outcome. And I think that was what made it really challenging for me. I was like, well, you know, it could be so much worse. So stop complaining, just get on with it. But you know, there's these really frustrating challenges still happening and you know, how do you, how do you navigate that? And how do you deal with that? And I've never been a person that likes to be, as I said before, like really vulnerable or really feel those emotions. So it was a new thing for me. It was like, no, I've really got to um, work through this. How did you work through it? I think, I'm not really sure. I think it was just, you know, starting to talk about it more openly, which still didn't come for a long time afterwards.
0: Because you're quite a private person.
1: Yes. (laughs) And I think it took... Unfortunately, it took another couple of health challenges to really um, come to a point of acceptance because – there was, you know, for a few years, it was just the it was just the cancer stuff. So it was, you know, we we're just monitoring, you know, the, the tests and the blood tests and all that sort of thing. Just became routine, and you just did that. It Was just it was like maintenance for anything else. It was like going for a run to keep fit. You just kept doing it because that was what what you had to do. And things were going quite well. But then, you know, we started to look into the fertility stuff. You know, that became quite challenging. We found out through some more surgeries that I actually had stage three um, endometriosis. Yeah. <laughs> So that just threw another huge curveball that I guess I wasn't expecting. But it answered a lot of questions about why I still wasn't feeling completely well all the time. But it made things super stressful because all of the things that you get with endometriosis and the polycystic ovaries can be um, symptoms for cancer. <laughs> so, you know, in that, that headspace, it was really hard because you were constantly worried about is it this, is it this, is it something else, yeah. should I really be worried about this.
0: And you'd have to become hypervigilant, I imagine like every yeah, little tingle <laughs> or niggle or uncomfortable you'd be like do I need to pay attention to this or yes, do <laughs> I need to suppress my feelings? feelings or-
1: um, am I overreacting? And you become yeah.
0: this it becomes really stressful
1: because you start doubting yourself and you don't yeah. go to the doctor because you're like oh my gosh the are going I'm, think I'm hypochondriac.
0: There wouldn't have been many people going through it?
1: No no it was quite a unique situation and then when they started doing the investigation of the endo, the same thing came up. They're like, "Oh, this is unusual. We didn't expect this for you." So it was the same conversation again. And then they went, "Oh, we'll just we'll do this. You know, because for, for endo, it's really hard to diagnose unless you, they actually cut you open again and have a look." So they did that, and. um said oh I think we'll just find a little bit like it we don't think it'll be that bad so and came out of a surgery with, with stage three endo and cuts everywhere and you know the same it was a bit like the first time around and I remember going into that the surgery where they removed all the endo and I was I was nearly hysterical and I didn't expect that because it was like all of the trauma from the first surgery came flooding back and it was a real shock and I just remember apologizing you know profusely over and over and it was I mean that you know as the doctors and nurses are in those sorts of situations. They were so nice, and I remember one of the nurses saying to me, "This is trauma. Like you are, it's okay. Like you've had, you know, from this before." And um, it's really hard. Like it's. <laughs> so then you know we we got past that hurdle, and um, you know the endo is still an ongoing issue. It's just you know it's a chronic thing that you just have to manage all the time and I kind of just got back on my feet after that and um we went back for a third go because the I grow scar tissue really well it's, it's a good talent of mine <laughs> so um, what are your strengths yeah, yeah I, I'm really it's really well and I, I grow <laughs> scar tissue well and um and I'm unusual <laughs> yeah unusual and I ended up having to have a bowel resection which took a little what? while to yeah as well because I went oh no I would be that like you wouldn't have that and it was so like more surgery again and more scar tissue. So it's just been the last ten years have been this really really interesting roller coaster of medical interventions and uh, recovering from surgery and managing God. chronic health issues. So it's just it's it's really really interesting place to be.
0: What is it like talking about it now? Like like looking back and seeing that that's been your ten years. What's with you right now as you talk about that?
1: I'm pretty grateful for the way like I I feel right now. So this year and last year is probably, you know, the best I've felt for for years and you know that's really really exciting and I feel like the first time in a long time like I haven't had that fear that something else is going to go wrong. And I think one of the things about that was, so after 10 years of, you know, like oncology visits um, all the time, we got to a stage where they were happy to say, no, like you're done. Like we're happy. You can finally move on from that. And that, that was, that was huge. Like it was a really big, just weight off my shoulders. It felt like I'd really turned a corner. And even all those other things, just, I went, no, like, I can do all this now. It was like, I feel like I'm back to, to being myself and I feel like I don't have this cloud hanging over me anymore. And anything else, you know, we, we can manage. Like, <laughs> it was,
0: yeah. yeah. And when you look back, what do you think was the hardest part for you through all of this? Because as, as we've just heard, there's were so many challenges in it. If you had to pick one, what was the hardest? It's almost been coming out the other side and
1: realizing that, well, all these things were going on. So I was sort of focused on, you know, myself and just getting through all these different health hurdles. And, you know, while this was all happening, you know, and, and talking about having a lot of conversations about fertility and things like that, you sort of, I, the analogy, that I think the best describes it is like you've been swimming underwater for 10 years and you come up for air and everything's different. Like, You know, your social circles are are all changed because everybody has kids and you just – it's really hard to figure out where you fit in that and – It's really hard to find, you know. This all started, you know, at 29, and it's really hard to come the other side at 40 now and go, well, how do I like? Where do I fit in this sort of, you know, uh, women in their 40s without children? It's it's sort of a bit of a murky social um, place to navigate, and it's. I think that's been the most challenging thing, and I didn't
0: realize that until I got out the other side. Well, you didn't have time. You didn't didn't have have time, time, or your priorities weren't there. You know, you just you were on survival, and you. You were recovering and then you were chasing the next battle that they threw at you. Yeah. And so Catherine, are you like, are you able to have kids or not? Up until
1: this point we haven't been able to. So yeah. And it's just I think and you know, my poor body I think has just been through so much, yeah, and it's it's probably the most difficult thing to talk about for sure.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna cry. To yeah. know. I know. it's like, but I think that this is really real, right? And this is what people don't understand. Like, you have dealt with all of that medical, and then you're still now processing that, right? Yeah, and I think I think
1: that's what it is, and it's just it's it's a really difficult thing to think about and to talk about because all of those things have come before, but. Unfortunately, it's the thing that comes to the front the most often because I think it's Luke gets a little bit of it. You know, people ask him, you know, do you have kids and that sort of thing. But I think women get it so much more. And and people ask a really personal question really often and don't really think about what the answer might be. And it's interesting to see people's reactions. So people often say, you know, they'll ask, you know, do you have children? And you say No and then they look uncomfortable and they look to you to make it okay and I always just laugh and I'm thinking you've just asked this question like
0: <laughs> yeah it's almost like you know where do you work and do you have kids like it's on the same line yeah
1: exactly it's it's the same line and it's it's difficult because people not and it's not even intentional but people make a lot of assumptions about you being a woman without children without even knowing you so they like they, they will often assume that you're selfish they'll often assume that you you know you're career driven without actually knowing any of the things behind it and I I find that
0: part really difficult. Yes, I've never thought about that. Yeah.
1: It's never intentional, but it's just, it's not the norm, I guess.
0: (laughs) And I'd imagine it's been really hard watching your friends have children and your siblings have children. Like, because I remember talking to one of my friends one day and I said to her, honey, you you can be happy for me and angry and sad for you at the same time. Like, you're allowed to have those competing emotions.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and I think... It depends on the day sometimes yeah. too. I think one of the things that I've been really lucky with is, and I don't I don't even know, I don't know why, and I don't even know how to explain it, but within my family unit, so my siblings and my parents, so I'm the oldest and I have two sisters and a brother, and they they all have children, but it's just the most authentic, organic way. They it's never made me feel different or left out or anything like you know it's just we've just seemed to manage it as a family unit really well and um I'm gonna cry now
0: (laughs) you're allowed to you're allowed to take a moment
1: you know how much I love crying (laughs) I
0: know I'm pretty sure that was the one thing you said to me no you didn't but like without saying it don't make me cry on this podcast (laughs) but I think these are the conversations that are unspoken about right Catherine? these are the, the questions that people aren't asking you about what is it really like for you and what has it really been like for you for the last 10 years?
1: Yeah. And, you know, with my siblings, it's just I don't, I don't know how to say it, but they just they never make you feel less and they always make you feel like you're valued. And it's just thank goodness for that because it's just <laughs> it's grounding and it's anchoring and it's just sometimes it's, you know, (laughs) exactly what you need.
0: Yeah. And so I guess maybe it might be worth us having a conversation about what could people say when they meet someone instead of asking if they're a mom or like, I don't, you know, I'm thinking about that now, like what could be said, or if they do say it, what could be the next sentence?
1: It's never intentional, but I just think if there's any question you're going to ask a woman, think before you ask, do you have kids? Just it's Or yeah. or even a man. But it's just sometimes it can be so triggering and it seems like such an innocent yeah. thing to say.
0: And also they might be trying to have kids in that moment as well. You don't exactly, know. Like it, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, and it's one of the most emotional times for people when they're trying to have children and they can't or they get told that they yeah. can't. Like, you know, I think, um, and, and you would know this way better than me, but... Often there's this conversation around when I've spoken to my girlfriends that can't have kids it's I felt like I was put on this earth to have kids and now that's taken away and what like what does it look like without that I think that's an interesting point of view too because often you
1: know I've heard people say this to me outright, which is always a little bit shocking, but they're just like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's easier for you to do, all you know, X, Y, or Z because you don't have kids. So your achievements are devalued because people go, well, it's easier for you. And I'm
0: like, oh, oh it's my god, like,
1: yeah. No, really? So that's that's really hard too because you start to doubt your own sort of, you know, achievements. You're like, oh, well, maybe, maybe it isn't as hard for me or maybe this isn't as, you know, as exciting or as important because, you know.
0: <laughs> We're allowed to swear on this podcast. I tell them to fuck off. <laughs> like you know because that's just like no way you know like your achievements are because you've worked bloody hard at it and when we've listened to what you've done over the last 10 years the fact that you're achieving in that space most people would have given up or closed ranks and shut doors <laughs> and been like I can't do this it's too hard too hard and
1: I think the other di- I think the other most difficult thing is people will say to you people say this to me often this must be really hard for Luke and I'm like yes but it's really hard for me to. Yeah. Like it's just so of course it's hard for us both but I just think yeah it's just
0: <laughs> so what conversations could we start having like what what conversations are is it helpful if people do talk about it to you or not talk about and I mean obviously you're talking from your experience and it is different for everyone but I want you to talk from your personal experience
1: I think I'm to a point now where like you know I feel comfortable and confident to talk about it and I feel like you know, I'm I'm in a place now that you know I feel okay with the situation, and um, you know, obviously there's things that are triggering at different times. You know, things like Mother's Day, things like that, are still pretty
0: yeah.
1: rough. But you know, I'd rather have the conversation with people because it might save somebody else um, <laughs> being put in an uncomfortable position from somebody asking those sorts of questions. I guess, like, but yeah, just just don't assume.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I think that's a really important message and I am the first one to put out my hand and say I've probably never really thought about it, you know. Yeah, and you don't. I've probably never, yeah, which is why it's so good having this conversation today. What about when you were going through it over those 10 years? Was there some support that was really helpful during that time?
1: I think one of the biggest things is, you know, be an active listener and sometimes it's better if you give support without giving too much advice and it's it's little things like, you know, oh, like, you know, I know someone else who's going through this, you should talk to them. And I'm like, yeah, because people who can't have kids really just want to sit around and talk to other people who yes. don't have kids, you know, things like that. Or, you know, oh, well, you know, this, you know, it's worked for such and such and or so like, Well, I'm not them. Like, you know, it's just be active and be supportive and just be guided by the person. Cause normally they will <laughs> tell you, you know, whether they want to talk about it or not, or what sort of support's helpful. Um, just like, don't, Try, try not to treat them too differently, I guess, as well. Like you know, they're still the same person.
0: And in a way, I think we've spoken about this again a few times on this podcast. But if you're not sure, ask the question: How best to support? Ask the question. I think of the that's person. the perfect thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. You just know. say,
0: you know, is this something you want to talk about? About. And I'm, here, and, yeah. I'm here if you don't, and I'm here if you do, and keeping that door open.
1: I think that's really important because, you know, like I said, the person may not realize, you know now in the moment, but they might realise nine months down the track that they need that and just keep doing that and keep going, you know, I am here for you. Like, you know, I don't always know what you need, but you know, just let me know if there is something that I can do. Yeah.
0: And did you find any support groups or any say Instagram pages or any books or anything helpful along your path and along your journey?
1: I didn't really look for that sort of thing until this year. And I sort of read a lot of things about, you know, um, just things on Instagram and just articles and things that, that I'd actually gone looking for. Things to do with, you know, what, what it's like not to have kids in your 40s or mm. – but I think, you know, the overwhelming thing was to just, you know, just to be accepting of people where they're at, whoever they are. And, you know, you read lots of things about – you know, women who are childless V, women who are working mothers V, women who are stay at home mothers, like just let women be women for who they are without, you know, trying to place too many value judgments on what they're doing and who they are. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've got out of, you know, reading things and looking at things. And it's hard because you have to keep challenging social norms, which which are changing, but, you know. Being childless in your 40s isn't a social norm, and it's always a little bit uncomfortable, like, till you sort of talk it down and break it down for people and for whatever reason.
0: Is there something that we haven't spoken about in this episode that has been a huge part of your experience or something that you want to say to someone that might be going through it?
1: I think probably I found it really useful to get involved in things. So, you know, you go mad if you stay in your head for too long. So, you know, one of the things that I found was, you know, yes, these things are challenging, these health things are challenging, but you know, what can I do to channel, you know, channel my energy and channel things into something, into something positive. And, um, you know, that's, that's why I got, I got involved in the community projects. That's why I got involved in doing the photography. It was just like, you know, I, think things could be so much worse. And I always think about, you know, that first cancer experience and going, you know, really I've been given a second chance. How are you going to make the most of that? So I just think, keep, keep looking for things that are going to keep you going and keep looking for things that you can be passionate about. And that you can, you know, put that energy into, because it makes a huge difference to your mental health, just to have something to, to go to and something to, you know, take your mind off those things and something to To make you feel like you are, you know, achieving things and being a part of something. And I think for me, that has been the most important thing. You know, Luke and I have got so involved in so many community things, and that's how we feel engaged and that's how we feel a part of something. And, you know, that's been so important for us. So I I think that's the best advice that I could give somebody. I think with the like, I never thought that the ambassador work would be something that I would become so passionate about but the one thing I've learned is I didn't realize how much of an impact telling my story could have I didn't think it was that you know a story that people would be that interested in but after doing October last year and just doing the little video which was probably one of the most confronting things I've ever done just telling my story is part of that. And then doing the white shirt campaign was just the number of people that, that reached out and just said, I've I've learnt something, or you've you know I've realised that I needed to get this checked out, or this has happened to me too, and the reach of that impact just was was overwhelming in a positive way. So I think that for me has also been been huge. Like it's been huge for me going forward from all this too. Like you know it really has been the positive that's turned all, all the negatives around. Mm,
0: and find the the voice that can provide help and. Maybe help that next person to take their next chapter or their next Absolutely. step. Absolutely, know? yes. It's yes. that old saying that your story becomes someone else's guidebook one day, and I think that's what you're talking about now. Absolutely, you have been able to come through ten years later. You're still in it, but you're you're coming through it, and now looking back and thinking, how can. How can we help other people that are going through this or have been through this Absolutely. as well? Absolutely, yeah. And I think the other thing that I take away from this, Catherine, from this conversation is that you never know someone's story. You know, you never know what sits behind the face that you're seeing or the conversation you're having. And And one thing we have learned in this podcast is that everyone does have a story. They may not always tell you. <laughs> and I think that, you know, that was something
1: that has always been re- very real for me, you know, being a teacher, like, you know, and, and seeing the kids and going, what's behind all this? And, mm. you know, it's something that I've become really aware of too, you know, working with adults, like in a coaching role. You've got to look at what's driving people and look at what's behind there and really stop and think about what could be going on there. And um, I think that's the best advice that you can give anybody. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah. And if you were going to say something to your younger self, You know, your 18-year-old Catherine, what would you tell her? I just think I'd probably say that you would be you'll be
1: amazed at how confident you've become and the different person that you are because I went from being the shyest, most introverted person that you could possibly be to actually, you know, being comfortable to put yourself out there. So I think, yeah, that would be what I'd say. Yeah,
0: and I bet you didn't think you'd be on an international podcast telling know, your most deepest, not. darkest stories. <laughs> I know, but like that's just incredible yeah. and I, I just, you know, thank you so much for coming on and having that conversation it takes a lot of courage and we spoke about it and you jumped at it I was I honestly <laughs> thought you'd be like no absolutely not reach out to me in five years and you were like you know what yes and then you did your ambassador work, and I was like, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna be going back into, you know, behind closed doors. Cause it is, it's when you put yourself, and this is something the listeners may not realize, but when you put yourself out there and people start to know who you are when you haven't even met them. So there becomes this whole group of people that know you, but you don't know them. And I didn't, and
1: that was something I wasn't really prepared for. I know that like I chatted to you about that. That was just like. Mind blown for me. That was a yeah. really big learning curve.
0: Yeah. yeah. And you just never know where this conversation is going to land. Like, we both yeah. don't know by having this conversation what's going to come of it, what people's feedback. And this is why, to the audience, I'm saying to our listeners and our Challenges that Changes community, please keep giving us the feedback because it's through the feedback that we get an indication of whether this is something that's helpful for you, something that you know might be helpful for someone else, or something that you want to know more about. Like, these conversations don't stop here. We can keep. Keep having these conversations, and we can provide more research. And I'm going to ask Catherine for some. Statistics. I'm going to ask Catherine for some statistics <laughs> that I can pop up as well, because I think I think it's really important that we increase awareness in this space. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I love to finish the podcast with who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. Oh my goodness! Probably my husband. Um- <laughs>
1: He is just the quirkiest, funniest person I know. So he makes me laugh every day. So I'd probably say him.
0: He's got a great rap, this podcast. I reckon um, you can you can save it and tell him not to listen until his birthday. And then you can be like, my present for you is? Is this
1: podcast. Yeah,
0: because it has. It's been a common thread throughout the whole podcast when it you has. talked about his support. He's been there every step of the way. and he And for sure him has. to be the one that oh makes gosh. you laugh. I love that. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I don't know if we laughed or cried more in that episode. One part that really hit home for me was the simple question of, do you have children? And the impact of asking that one question. I have since this interview, which was only a week ago, already caught myself asking that question totally out of my awareness. It is so true. It just rolls off the tongue. What do you do? Where are you from? Do you have kids? We need to be aware of the things that we're saying and who we're saying it to. And we're not always going to get it right. But I think just even if we can start to like raise that awareness and, you know, maybe once or twice where we may go in and have that conversation, we might be able to catch it before we do. I've also learned so much about ovarian cancer since Catherine's For October event. The statistic that blows my mind is that in Australia, one woman dies every eight hours from ovarian cancer. Can you please, please, please share this episode with all the women in your life and all the dads out there that have daughters? I hope that the more we share this message, the more we raise awareness, the greater impact we can have on that statistic. If every single one of you shares this episode with two people, just two, 26,000 people will hear this information. This is how we start to make changes in this world. The simple act of sharing the information that means something to us and helping raise awareness and helping save lives. I'll see you guys all next week.